This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's pledge season on Slate Podcasts. If you love the audiobook club, you can help support it by joining Slate Plus at slate.com slash ABC Plus. We'll be talking about it more later in the show. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I am Laura Bennett, Features Director of Slate and Editor of the Slate Book Review, and I am here in the studio in New York with Megan O'Rourke, who is a culture critic from many places, including Slate, actually the founder of the Audio Book Club, which is very exciting, and the author of the book Sun and Days, which just came out and everyone should take a look at. Uh, And then on the phones in D.C., we have Katie Waldman, staff writer at Slate. I am hosting today instead of our usual host, Katie, because she's uh, knee-deep in a cover story she's writing this week, and we're trying to spare her any added mental labor. (laughs) But uh, before we dig in, I also wanted to say that next month's audiobook club is uh, Hillary Clinton's What Happened. So we're very excited about that one, too. All right. Uh, Today, we will be talking about Sally Rooney's very buzzy debut novel, Conversations with Friends which is set in Dublin and follows a quartet of exceedingly verbal, miscellaneously pretentious characters as they (laughs) befriend each other and have affairs and fall in love and betray each other and other psychosexual shenanigans. Uh, We have Francis, who's our uh, complicated and fascinating narrator, narrator, who we will definitely talk about more, her uh, former girlfriend, current best friend, and partner in performing spoken word poetry, the brilliant and magnetic Bobby, who is uh, the kind of human around whom people tend to helplessly orbit. And then there's a married couple consisting of B-ish list actor Nick, who has a notably handsome face and a sculpted torso, and his far more compelling writer wife, Melissa. Uh, This book is a tremendously acute study of social performance and psychology in a certain lefty intellectual hipster milieu. Rooney is very young. She's 26 years old, I believe, unless she's turned 27 in the intervening months. Uh, But her writing has this low-key intelligence and clear-eyed confidence that uh, pretty much dazzled me. But to start with, I would just love to simply hear your straightforward thoughts. Megan and Katie, what did you think of this book? Gosh, I was a big fan Definitely. Um, I found something about the combination of like how plain spoken the prose was and how subtle and sharp the observations were really attractive. And um, yeah, the other thing that 
um, really surprised me about the book is how unpredictable the characters were. I really felt like at any given moment, I had no idea what they would do next. Like they seemed so full of different dimensions and different sort of um, conflicting desires and interests um, that I was just, it was kind of a thriller to me. And I was thinking, wow, this is like the adultery novel or like the social satire that's also kind of a suspense novel because you have no idea what these very fully created characters are going to do next. I found this novel really fun to read. I think you used the word attractive, Katie, and something that the book itself is attractive, which is which is true. It kind of propels you along. Um, the combination of knowingness and naivete in the characters that uh, Rooney explores is really fascinating and brought me somewhat terrifyingly back to my early 20s when I lived in Dublin, actually. Oh, wow. Oh, um, took, a, took a semester off from school. And it was interesting, a little bracket to think about as I was trying to think, what in this novel could have been written? There was a lot in the novel that felt like it could have been written in 1996 when I was there, and some of it that felt like it could only be written now. Um, so I was really drawn to it. I think it's really, she's talented. Um, she's she's walking this line of kind of exploiting cleverness and foolishness. Um, the characters, the, the heart of the book is a female friendship of the sort that is increasingly being explored but hasn't been widely explored in literature. And these are very young female friends. So that was really wonderful to see. I think the book, I would say, and I'm curious to hear what you two think, I ended up feeling the book was very marred by being far too long. Hmm. Um, and for me, that was a real issue because I wanted to feel confident that the writer was in control of the project and therefore that the writer understood quite a lot about her character. And the lengthiness and the kind of flatness and sort of ordinariness of some of the the affair that's at the middle of it and the way it drags on and on started to make me question how much distance there was here and how much control there really was. But, you know, there clearly is quite a lot of control and um, she's really talented. But I think it would have been a truly um, pretty remarkable book at about 80 to 100 pages shorter, like a much more aesthetically defined because sections of it really are. And then sections of it just felt like, OK, we're kind of and then and then and then and mm -hmm. some of the charm um, really fell flat for me there. That is so interesting. I mean, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because one book that came to mind as a kind of counterpoint in my head, just because it was also a buzzy recent debut novel by a precocious young woman around the same age as Rooney uh, that also features an intense sort of sporadically romantic female friendship uh, at its center is Emma Klein's The Girls. Mm -hmm. And I was just struck reading this book, Rooney's book, by the total absence of sort of the usual ticks of debut literary fiction, including The Girls, which is great in plenty of ways, but the sort of filigreed metaphors and the winking symbolism and the the breathless commitment to making the plot feel suspenseful even when it's not. And so the way uh, Klein ends every section on some sort of foreboding, overdetermined sentence, like, and then this is going to happen, and you're sort of meant to read meaning into it even when there might not be meaning. Uh but this is just such a sort of clear and confident book that doesn't do any of that. And it has a certain like poise to it. And I was trying to figure out why it feels so sort of um, both of you talked about the pacing of it, why it kind of feels suspenseful in a certain way. And Katie described it in the review she wrote for Slate as flow, uh, 
uh, Sally Rooney was a debater in college and flow yeah. is the state yeah. you intern to when ideas just assemble in your head. And that felt right to me. A, a book that feel this is a book that feels like it's driven by ideas instead of plot. And yet it's totally propulsive because you feel like you're sitting on one continuous wavelength for these 300 pages or whatever. And which you kind of are because she allegedly wrote this book in three months. And so for me, I felt like it moved quickly for that reason. It moves quickly. I don't disagree. I think it moves very quickly. I read it in a rush. But I think that the idea, the presence of ideas in the book, which is to me the most formally interesting aspect of it, which is this combination of, you know, in the review that ran in The New Yorker, Alexander Schwartz talked about the ways that in some ways that, you know, these two young women present themselves as, you know, as you said, kind of leftist, you know, radical, like deconstructing. Uh, you know, certain kind of gender concepts. And there's a lot of theory in the book, which was part of what made, reminded me so much of the 90s, because I was like, wow, these are the same conversations and the same references, right? Like Baudrillard and et cetera. Um, so, you know, it's very quick. It's like candy. But in fact, I started to feel like it was too much like candy at a huh. certain point. And I completely agree with you, by the way, about the differentiation between this and, and Emma Klein. I think she's a much more interesting writer. I think she's got a lot of control and the stakes are really high. So, I think she's super talented um, and she's doing something super interesting. I just think, and this is me being kind of tough on it because I think she's, you know, genuinely an interesting writer trying to do a a very literary thing. Um, it just started to feel like the ideas dropped away and it was a lot of hmm. her and Nick having sex and then like little things coming in. But it, it just felt like there was one more round of pretty stringent editing that would have, I don't know, just brought the negative space of the novel like much more you know made it much more stark and interesting and and dramatic but this is a this is a kind of in a way a small complaint because i would definitely read her next book well what's interesting too is i mean i can get that sense of drift that she that 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 the novel gives off just in part because she's so concerned with uh the mundane and it just feels like you know if emma klein is sort of doing these breathless cliffhangers these are very mundane set pieces like the most sort of high stakes thing that happens is a dinner party where Francis says something that's like maybe 65% less polite than everything else she says but it's still like not that big a deal of her losing her temper um and so i i guess there's a sense in which she sort of consciously draws back from extremes and if you are going to write a 300-page book, that's like a risky proposition not to really go into extremes at all. I um, mean, I guess like the only real contact with extremity we have is like the very painful uh, condition that Frances has around her period. Um, so maybe we can talk about that at some point as like, um, I don't know, what a an element from sort of a different type of uh, register, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think the book moves a lot like a poem, actually. You know, I think it has these, I love that it pulls back from extremes. And I think you could write a 300-page book that that did that. I just, you know, it's a little of the, if Christian Lorenzen had a good line in his review where he talks about there's sort of a few too many moments of like mutual reassurance that, you know, at a certain point, I guess this is my impatience as someone not in my 20s anymore, but I was like, yes, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like at a certain point, I was like, I got it. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, what's really interesting about this book, Katie, is what you said. It sort of moves through, there are these, uh, what we would 
properly almost call leitmotifs of um, the father. We haven't talked about her father, who's an alcoholic, um, who seems almost to threaten suicide, who actually pretty almost explicitly threatens suicide at a certain point. So that's another, you talked about the dinner party, and then there's this other moment of the stakes seem to rise. There's this late night phone call. He says, I'm so sorry. You know, she hasn't, she's been going to his house um, and cleaning up after him because there's just been flies and garbage and leftover meals. And it's, it's really painful. And this element of the story made me think a lot about Carl Ova Knausgaard's series and his relationship to his father and the way that kind of abuse and illness, mental illness, become a kind of pall that changes your sense of personality and or persona and time. Anyway, so her father, the other like moment like this, in addition to the sickness and the dinner party as her father makes this call. And I thought, oh, no, I kind of he's going to die and I yeah, don't know what's so going to happen. And mm-hmm. one of the wonderful things about the book is the restraint that it doesn't happen. You know, I, I, I like that. That felt really interesting and really weird. And actually, in a book, this book reminded a writer that she was making me think of an American writer, Ben Lerner, um, who I think is also really interested in the way that novels can move kind of like poems with these themes and leitmotifs that get developed and pushed against each other, but never kind of very explicitly pulled pulled out and made kind of expository. Um, and also really interested in a kind of flat affect and performative character mm-hmm. who's really smart and aware of how he or she, you know, should be doing things, you know, um, but isn't in the learner. There's this description of him looking at art and being like, I'm supposed to have this kind of response. And there's a great description of Francis at the beginning, kind of arranging her face at the dinner party <laughs> that they go to with Nick and Melissa. The learner is, that's such a good analogy that I didn't even think of because all of the, I mean, I, the, I liked the the New York Review mentioned Ferrante now scored with both seen pretty, I sort of understood why those were being summoned as reference points. But learner in some ways feels more useful because, well, it, you know, his writing is also about partly like the debilitation and exhaustion and ridiculousness of living in an ironic mode. Yes, and, exactly. And that's mm-hmm. something that and that is something that I felt like she the sort of interrogation of of that of is something I felt like she sustained pretty nicely throughout the book. The epigraph of the book struck me, which is a Frank O'Hara quote, uh, which is in times of crisis, we must all decide again and again whom we love. Uh, and it ties a little bit into that inside joke that Francis and Bobby develop wherein they ask themselves over and over again, what is a friend? What is a conversation? Um, which is basically just a joke about how obsessed they are with, you know, analyzing what kind of person one should be and how that's actually like what a preposterous sort of waste of time it is to yeah. like live inside that mode for too long. Um, but like her Francis's baroque self-awareness is one of the great charms of the mm. book and yet she's so self-deluding like she thinks she's hovering above herself and analyzing and adjudicating her and her friends every move and but really she's stumbling along like every other hapless human so yeah. the very idea that we can decide again and again whom we love is held up as like a kind of fallacy uh because of course we can't decide that and yet she's so committed to pretending that she can Hi, it's your audio book club host, and it's pledge season here. Uh, we want you to help support this show and other Slate podcasts by joining Slate Plus, which you can do at slate.com slash ABC Plus. Um, and actually, now to help me um, really hammer this message home, I am bringing in my esteemed colleague, executive editor of What the Hell 
this year title game. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. Editorial director. I get so many great titles. Julia called me the editorial director <laughs> of Slate earlier today. It was an awesome on-air promotion. Okay. Well, Gabe is here. Um, please tell us. Tell us everything. As public radio sometimes does, we are asking for your support. If you listen to the Audio Book Club, if you listen to Slate's other great podcasts, if you read Katie's writing on the website or the other stuff that Slate publishes, uh, and if you can afford it, we would like to ask you to support us by joining Slate Plus, our membership program. Uh, if you're a Slate Plus member, you're going to get all kinds of benefits, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but the really important thing that we're talking about today is if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll be helping us do this work, helping us bring you these podcast shows, bring you uh, the website content, and do the kind of journalism that uh, we want to do and that hopefully you find valuable. I can interject here. Just please help me pay my salary or help my bosses pay my salary. That's so, I mean, it's so lovely when they do that and they do every single month. Um, and it would be so great if that could just continue for the near future. Um, so thank you. Thank you if you contribute to that effort. I should be clear that Katie's salary is not in fact in jeopardy. We're not threatening. <laughs> it to, we're, not, we're not saying join Slate Plus or we fire Katie Waldman. That that would be a terrible thing to do and, and a terrible editorial decision and, and it's not going to happen. All right. Well, I was trying to put a sort of reality show drama human face on this, but that was beautifully said and I agree. <laughs> I'm, so, I, I'm sorry, Katie, but I'm not going to threaten to fire you on the air even if you get some <laughs> sort of perverse gratification from me doing that. You should sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash ABC plus. That ABC for Audiobook Club uh, indicates that you're coming to us from the Audiobook Club, that you like this show, that you care about these in-depth discussions of contemporary literature and fiction. And there's a prize for you as well. If you sign up through ABC Plus, you might win a phone call from Katie Waldman for you or a loved one. Uh, your favorite Slate podcast host, uh, be it Katie Waldman or David Plotz or uh, Stephen Metcalf or whoever it may be, you should hear what uh, what you should hear some of the uh, ribald jokes that Katie Waldman uh, will go into after hours. It's pretty shocking, let me tell you. I have a really good one about a bus, actually. Um, about a bus. Yeah, it's not ribald, but it's hilarious. I was, um, I dreamed it up while I was uh, waiting for an edit back, and this now is I'm an never original get joke. Delays. This is an original joke. Yes, I feel like now we have to do. You have to do the joke as a Slate Plus segment, like next month. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I actually do want to tell you the joke at some point. I, <laughs> I obviously am going to hear the joke privately, but if you, the listener, want to hear the joke, um, we'll we'll skip the whole contest bit regarding this joke, and um, we'll record it for a segment that will be available only to Slate Plus members uh, on the next episode of Audio Book Club. So uh, if that intrigues you, what's the URL they should go to, Katie? Slate.com slash ABC Plus. Do it. All right. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. Thanks, Gabe. Megan, you mentioned that one of the formal sort of uh, flares or, or distinguishing characteristics of this book is the way it weaves together ideas and narrative. And I mean, I was wondering sometimes just because there is so much conversation, there's so much banter and chatter and just, you know, there's texts and letters and um, spoken and speech. Um, but like, how are we supposed to interpret the content of all those conversations like is it satire are we supposed to roll our eyes like is are these things that they say to each other not very meaningful or are they actually worth respecting and thinking about well i think that's a great question and it gets to me 
gets for me at this reservation I have about the novel, which again, let's just, you know, put on the table. I admire it. I'm curious about her. I want to read more. But if I take the book as seriously as I think it wants to be taken, I think it wants to be taken very, very seriously. Um, I have a lot of questions by by the end of it, and some of those are produced by the those the lengthiness of those scenes where Lerner, I felt, had total control over. And the, his books, you know, have their problems, but I felt like there was like a total meta level of control that I felt reading it of the author's relationship to the characters and then the character's relationship to us and how seriously we were or weren't supposed to take certain things. Here, I wasn't always sure. Um, and I think because the book, because Francis is a character, one thing we haven't really touched on is that she's very self-sabotaging. There are these moments in the relationship where she and Nick have a kind of dramatic standoff and stop talking, but like nothing needed to happen. I mean, which is real. And I kind of like that. Like she, all she needed to do was reveal one little thing. She's a very, we would call it defended person. Right. And so that's part of what's interesting about those conversations you're talking about, Katie, is that sometimes they enter the book, um, as a way of showing us that Frances is making a kind of mistake about herself, right? There's a moment when Bobby says, there's a text message series that I, that I loved um, kind of late in the book. And it made me wish there was a lot, that there were a lot more text messaging because I thought formally that was really interesting and kind of a way of showing Francis in the round a bit more. One of the best uses of text messages or G-chat transcripts in no- a novel I've seen. Yeah, Another is um, Ben Ben Lerner. I keep going back to that, but he is a he's a great. She reveals she realizes something about herself because she sees something that Bobby wrote about her earlier, and it kind of changes her, you know, her personality, her sense of who she is. But you know, the question I ended up having is that this book felt. Someone mentions Brett Easton Ellis on the back of the book, and it seemed like the most un Brett Easton Ellis <laughs> book that could be because he's so anti interiority. He's so much about the surface, um, you know, the cues, the exterior cues, which actually there's almost no, um, there's very few names of things like Apple. There's very few brand names in this book, right? And that and that is something that characterizes Ellis's way of sort of getting to the exterior of people. And, and instead, Frances fears she has no ex- interior, and she's constantly arranging her exterior. And we begin to wonder if she has no interior. And that's actually really interesting in this kind of social media age. I thought that's fascinating. This is kind of a social media. This is a book of the social media. But then the whole conundrum becomes like, can I, does this man love me? I don't know. That was where my disappointment a little bit entered. Because I was like, well, this is so conventional. Even though you end up with like, oh, we can end up having a relationship outside of marriage. The whole premise and conundrum and and the whole sense of being so inhibited from making yourself vulnerable, that seemed so conventional to me, like that you would be afraid as a young woman to show your feelings. I I don't know. In a certain way, the way that all wrapped up. And I think for me, that had a lot to do with the way illness entered the book, because I thought the writing about illness was really not metabolized um, as someone who's writing a book about illness and has been ill for a long time with, among other things, the disease that Francis has. I just found that part, like, I thought I would find it really interesting, and it felt really undeveloped and under under theorized and under thought through. I totally agree with that. I think that's a great point. I would like to hear more about the illness specifically. But I would I disagree on the Nick Francis relationship just because I felt like it was heartbreaking and smartly drawn, particularly it wasn't just like a 
young woman afraid to show her feelings. Yeah. It was the sort of defensive posture of, I care less about you than you care about me, and how important that is to her and the agony of sustaining it, even as you start to care more and more. Yeah. Uh, and that felt like a very... Uh, it was recognizable, but it didn't feel familiar. Like, yeah. I just thought that her combination of, like, the way her sort of ego played out over the course of that relationship and the power dynamic and the fact that we were left wondering who really had the power in the end was kind of interestingly done. That was I great. Was, yeah. I agree. I just, there's something, and, and I'm sort of playing devil's advocate about the relationship, but I just wondered if something is, like, slightly under... I don't know. I don't know. There was so, toward the end, I started to be like, Francis, <laughs> which we're supposed to feel. Sorry, Katie, I cut you off. Oh, no. I just um, – I I agree with you about the conventionality of the relationship, but I also think that that is something that not only Sally Rooney is very aware of, yeah. but that uh, Francis herself is really struggling with. Um, like she – want, and in many ways, like a lot of these characters um, want to be transgressive, subversive – souls and are completely enmeshed in things like capitalism and patriarchy and, you know, Bobby, who is the most kind of like nose-pierced charismatic rebel of them all, has a very wealthy father and goes out for a three-course meal with him in Dublin. And so so I do think that maybe as opposed to just sort of like resigning herself to a conventional narrative, the author is like playing with how these characters yeah, bounce off. I agree with you guys. I, mean, I, do, I, I do. I'm playing devil's advocate. I like the devil's advocate also. But I, but, I, like, but I agree with you. I mean, I think, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I like the devil's advocacy also because reviews have been so glowing of this book that this right. is kind of the first time we're sort of confronting the reason, like you know, ways in which this, you know, this book, um, maybe you know, could have been could have been even better than it was, and it was very good. But one thing that I wanted to shout out before we get back to the body stuff and the illness stuff was the ending of the book, which I loved so much. And felt it almost for me redeemed a lot of the driftiness in the middle. And it's hard to nail an ending like that. But the just for to share with our readers, with our listeners, um, she is uh, she's in this like another one of the many sort of pas de deux with Nick that she has over the course of the book. Um, you kind of think the relationship has ended. And then uh, they enter this flirtation again. And her final lines are. You live through certain things before you understand them. You can't always take the analytical position. Come and get me, I said. And it gave me a chill because what a beautiful and direct but sort of understated way to get at another thing this book is about or maybe the central thing this book is about, which is the distance between sort of theory and praxis, like how easy it is as a smart young person to talk yourself into the shape of certain ideological positions and how ridiculous and exhausting it is to expect yourself to act out those positions all the time and also just how important it is for a young person just to like live you know she spends so much time yet as the reader you get a kind of intellectual stockholm syndrome being trapped inside her brain where you sort of lose sight of what's rational and what's not and what's a good idea and what's a bad idea you're just kind of swept along by her self-justifications and then at the end there's this tiny jolt that reminds you that she really has had no idea what she's doing, and that's okay. That's a really I, I loved the ending too, and I thought exa- I just would echo what you said that I think the book is about being young and about having all these ideas, and then the reality. And I think in that way it gets at and then the reality of living them, and in that way it gets at something really profound about a kind of post-feminist experience of love that I think. In a funny way, a, a writer like Christina Naring was trying to get it in her book about called the a Vindication of Love, which is a nonfiction book 
from a very different angle, kind of defending women losing themselves in love. And I feel like this book is trying to make space, as you said, Katie, very self-consciously for a woman losing herself in love with a man. And it looks conventional, but that's real. Like that's love, like a married man. It's this so the oldest problem in the world, this position of no power, but it's actually not that. It's this much more complicated lived experience. And one of the real virtues of the book is how it gets the complexity of that lived experience. And as you were saying, um, Laura, nails certain kind of postural, gestural relationship experiences in a way that that, that hasn't haven't been described a lot. I like that a lot. So just to get back to your very smart thoughts about the way the body stuff doesn't feel fully integrated, um, how, in what way did you feel like it didn't seem fully integrated? You know, I've had a long, tiring week, and I've been trying to think about how to um, how to put it and why, and I haven't been able to quite nail it. And and partly, I've had a long, tiring week reading from pieces that I've written about illness. Um, I think that I think that ill the experience of being ill is an ex- experience of being an onion, (laughs) which is to say that there's many layers and you peel them down one by one and they become very interesting and complex and very, very hard to write about. And there's very little good writing about it, um, which is why I was so excited that she is writing about this. I felt like she only got kind of one layer in. The the illness still felt kind of performative, even though she's so, so much pain and that part is described really well. I think the the way she did, writes the body is very strong. She's a strong writer of the body. I thought the sex scenes were really good, too, in a lot of ways. But there was something about the writing and the, the thinking ha- weren't dovetailing as well as they did elsewhere. Like, I felt like her thinking as an author on the subject wasn't um, as clear. It just hadn't reached the depths that it had about her thinking about relationships, for example. Um, so... Yeah, it was like she was kind of like, oh, maybe I'm going to have kids, maybe I'm not. And there's a beautiful scene with a baby because this disease she has, endometriosis, can make it harder to have children. Um, It just, I guess, it still felt like that it was being experienced in that state of shock rather than than having been embodied, right? If that makes sense. I'm sorry. I'm being hopelessly abstract. It's it's hard to talk about. But I think I didn't feel like it had been metabolized in her body, right, right? in Frances's body yet um, somehow. I did not perceive a deficit here, but now listening to Megan's very smart thoughts about it, um, I am persuaded. Like it, it definitely. I guess my experience of reading these scenes was like, oh, this is something from a different book. This is something from a different yeah. train of That's thought. Part and of it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, sure, that could that could suggest that she hasn't sort of folded it into the rest of what she's doing here. I guess there's something – it's just disjunctive when so much of your book is about sort of like the layers that you're putting on, um, like the coat that she loves that mm-hmm. belongs to Nick and um, sort of like the trappings of a luxurious lifestyle and all of the symbols of being a a, a, a woman in love. Like the – I don't know. There were, there were these like sexual roses at some point. Anyway, I just think like there's something – kind of irreducible about the body and I think this book is trying this is so inarticulate no, is trying to talk about like 
the irreducible and like what is beneath all of those layers and if there is something beneath all this conversation and all those layers. And I think the sickness is sort of playing the role of like what could be an answer to that question. Mm -hmm. But you're right. It's like not there yet. That's really interesting. And I think that's right. I think as I'm thinking about it, I think maybe a reservation I have. And again, I'm not... (laughs) I would rather it's in the book than that it's not. You know, I think it's part of the book's ambition. Um, You know, and this is all really on the kind of graded on a curve. Um, I think one, maybe a way of putting it is that the sickness is a vehicle in the book for Frances to realize something about herself, right? It's a reality. It's a narrative reality. So it's an embodied reality for Frances that, again, she does describe well. And as I loved that idea of the irreducible. And that's very much what it is. But it's also a narrative vehicle for the author. Um, it's a way for her to have Frances realize she has to be, you know, let's say more openly vulnerable, um, you know, which I'm kind of putting scare quotes around. But, you know, at first she won't tell anybody she's in the hospital. She does. She calls Nick, but she, he's kind of rude to her. She's in the hospital in pain. She probably has a cyst or something like this where she's having an endometrial flare. And, he, you know, he's kind of mean to her. And so she doesn't tell him anything. She doesn't tell her mother. She doesn't tell Bobby. And by the end of the book, she does tell Nick. And she says, well, how should I tell Bobby? And it's kind of a very moving moment. But it's it's maybe a little too, like, on the nose as a vehicle and yet underdeveloped. I don't know. I, I, as I said, I don't have a great I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. actually. I think that is uh, very smart and useful. I mean, Frances is such an interesting character in a billion ways. I also felt like, I mean, we talked a little bit about this, but Rooney's past as a debater actually feels so... Uh, germane to the way the book is organized and sort of how and it's like dialectical mm. style, if you will. Like her personality, Francis's personality is defined by how nimbly she can argue both sides of an issue. And despite all I mean, so despite all the labels Francis and Bobby try out and perform for each other, like Marx is neurotic individualist, gay, straight. They're really Communist, just right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Francis calls herself anti-love which is a hilarious pose and right. bobby demolishes at it right. as vapid um but in some ways francis is characterized by the total absence of real ideology she's like it's a kind of pathological cleverness untethered to any real position mm-hmm. um but and it was maybe partly because of that i felt like in all the reviews of the books critics differed in their opinions on uh, how on her degree of agency, like Laura Miller said in her piece for Slate, she has no discernible will to speak of. But then there were other critics who described Frances as this manipulator of everybody around her. What were your impressions of sort of Frances's agency? So interesting. I mean, can I just say what what you were saying reminds me that one of the things I loved about the book was Rooney's tenderness toward all her characters. Like Bobby could be this kind of cliche of the like, she's beautiful, she's rich, she like, you know, we've all known something like this. She wraps people around her fingers, she gets them to do what she wants. Frances is this like thin, more, you know, um, sardonic and kind of much more contained to the point where she, right, she worries she has no interiority. As for agency, I think she has a fair amount of agency. Some of it is quite banked. You know, like a fire. Right. Um, but it's strong. It's like a strong fire and a strong agency. I mean, after all, she is the narrator. And that is really, for me, the, one of the most fascinating things about the book. And I think really uh, I've been, you know, nitpicking. But a real accomplishment of it is the way it it describes a certain kind of 
powerful person who happens to be a woman and then also conveys some of the ways in which that gets shaped by being a woman in this particular juncture in her class in Ireland, which we haven't talked about, by the way. I would like to talk a little bit about that, Ireland. But I thought she had a fair amount of agency that she didn't always use. Hmm. Yeah, I think that was what I was trying to get out when I said that like this book felt so unpredictable to me and the characters felt sort of like wild cards because there was such a sense of potential energy in Frances especially. And you never knew whether she was going to sort of erupt in some kind of like – angry provocation or just like be kind of mild-mannered and demure and like secretive and blank. Um, And so I do think that – I guess something I wrote in my review is that she does not often believe that she has agency. And because she sort of tells herself this – this excuse basically, like I don't have power, I can't hurt or betray the people around me. She ends up doing that. No, I think it's so interesting because she also talks about, you know, when her father was living with her mother. I think this I think a lot of this is about her father's alcoholism. I think that the personality that Rooney has gotten on the page is the personality that Al-Anon was created to kind of support and talk about in a very therapeutic 12-steppy way. But she has created a really amazingly complex um, dimensional version of someone who has grown up with an alcoholic very, very close to them where you have agents and you don't, you contain, you erupt and you're an enabler and you're not. And there's an amazing passage I was just thinking of when you were talking, Katie, I didn't mean to interrupt you, where she says, you know, she threw her father threw her shoe in the fire and she watched it burn or something Mm -hmm. like this. And she said, and I would have let my face burn too. But she didn't understand. I would have let my face burn too. On the one hand, the most passive thing you can think of. On the other hand, the most, you know, what agency there would be in letting your face burn in a fire and how much agency there is in writing that really raw, not just raw, but like, it's just kind of almost fierce and vicious almost in a certain way. That's what makes her so interesting. She's sort of an anti-heroine who's not an Mm anti-heroine. Anyway. That's great. I mean, Frances and Bobby spend so much time talking about the kind of people they are and brokely justifying all their bad behavior, like boning married men and publishing stories about each other uh, <laughs> without their consent, according to certain abstract precepts. But then, yeah, I mean, it's just by the end of the book, you kind of realize that you've been, uh, you know, held captive by all of their self-justifications. What, what, this is something that we... I think uh, I think Megan mentioned before, which was the way that this this book manages to feel intensely modern somehow. That so, I saw in some review, or maybe it was Jackie Copy or something, that Rooney was called the Salinger of her of the Snapchat generation, which is so goofy. But did make me think about how deftly Rooney has written a book that feels of the digital age without gratuitously mentioning selfies or likes or anything. Uh, and in part, it's the way in which life feels like one ongoing conversation mm-hmm. that simply changes mm-hmm. platforms. But I was curious to get your thoughts on what makes this book feel. And and Megan, your point that there are no brands, really. There are no kind of anchoring uh, touchstones. And yet it feels so much like a book that was written now by a young person. Yeah, I mean, I guess one, the word that sort of leapt to mind when you were talking about that is uh, aimless. Like there's a sort of quality of of aimlessness and drifting and sort of letting the world wash over you without engaging really actively with it. So, so I guess that passivity, like this book, reading this book 
or being inside these characters' heads often feels like surfing the internet a little bit um, in some ways. Uh, so I guess that would be like one observation I would make to link the book to uh, 2017. Also, obviously, there are references to the internet and all these different communication right. I did love the casual details about Bobby idly Googling public housing policy or whatever when she's <laughs> exactly. like digging around on the internet. No, yeah. I think the way she brings in just like the internet as a phenomenon, she says something about, you know, she just read around on the internet, which she just describes sort of the actions of interacting with the internet very well and seamlessly. But for me, that stance starts on the very first page where, you know, interestingly, the book begins, Bobby and I first met Melissa at a poetry night in town, not, you know, I first met Melissa in poetry, whatever, because it's so much about this this duo. But they talk about going to Melissa's house. Melissa's the older woman who's married to Nick um, and having dinner. And Francis says, uh, or I'm sorry, they're all, yeah, they're going back to Melissa's house for a drink and um, they're in a cab, a jingle played. And Francis says, I felt excited, ready for the challenge of visiting a stranger's home, already preparing compliments and certain facial expressions to make myself seem charming. And to me, that is part of what seems like it's very, very modern, just that endless awareness of, of self-presentation. And of course, that was always there in human experience, right? Self-consciousness is a defining factor of human experience. But the willingness to kind of be frontal and affectless about it, almost morally neutral, I think once, you know, I think when I was 20, you had a sense of shame about that phenomenon within yourself. And I think a function of contemporaneity is feeling no shame about that. And in fact, sort of almost discussing that explicitly. And to me, that was I was thinking, oh, this is really like, yeah, it is like a Snapchat. Not it's the post social media novel in that in that way. Um, I think uh, I think that is exactly right. That is really smart. Um, can, can I ask you guys a question? Yeah, please do. So I was very interested in the Irishness and non-Irishness of this novel, which I, which I feel like I you're going to be more expert on the subject than well, we are. <laughs> I'm excited. Barely, barely. I mean, I've been reading a lot of Irish. I've been reading. There's a lot of good you know, writing coming out of Ireland now, as always. But um, yeah, to me, and I think partly because I lived in Dublin at, at this exact age. And she, to me, it seems like it's a, it's a very interesting novel in its Irishness, too, in that it's it's quite aware of trying to be post a certain idea of almost ethnic Irish literature, right? There's this great scene where the, she goes on a Tinder date with a guy who likes Yeats and she's sort of slammed and she's like, oh, yeah, it's great <laughs> if you like, you know, that's fascist poetry for you. And then <laughs> later she's talking to Nick and I'm trying to find the quote, but there's a great little back and forth about Yeats, right? And, you know, Yeats was one of the kind of, you know, center central posts of Irish literature for so long and but the his politics obviously are problematic and it just it, that felt like such a kind of careful like gesture of what Irishness is now and the kind of want, not wanting to be metabolized I remember when I lived in Ireland you know that young Irish people very much had this sense of like this is how the world sees us with, you know, shamrocks and leprechauns and this kind of pushing against that, that, you know, post-EU, post the boom in Ireland, felt, you know, it's been totally internalized and metabolized. And I thought that was a really interesting self-conscious part of the book. But but it, there's more than that. It's There's the scene when she keeps going back to her house and her family is much less well off than everyone else's family, you know, Bobby's family, Nick's family. And she, the she's ashamed of the alcoholism of her father, which is uh, alcoholism being a very common problem. And then 
she comes back to our, to Dublin, and at some point, it comes out that Nick was in a mental institution. And there's this very interesting passage. I don't know if you remember where she talks about, oh, kind of back home, that would have been something to be ashamed of. But here, it's not like I've really arrived. I've really, I can't remember the passage, and I've been trying to find it. But that, to me, felt like, oh, this moment when the novel was like very, very Irish as opposed to American. Because a lot of the novel, I felt like I could just be reading an American novel. And I realized like that sense of the vulnerability and what you expose and what you don't I think is a, is very Irish in the book, even though we can all connect. Does this make sense? It makes total sense, but I am so fascinated by this because I don't know much about, I've never lived in Dublin, and yeah. to me this book felt so uh, transferable. Like I, yeah. I just was like, this yeah. is sort of performative, uh, you know, pretentious uh, hipster culture in any of the numerous, you know, totally. such neighborhoods I've lived in. Yeah, and it um, totally, totally is, and I think... What's great? What I'm trying to say is, like, I think one of the real accomplishments of the book is that I think there's also this other level mm-hmm. of of it being a very Irish book <laughs> um, mm. at the same time, like kind of contending with a whole set of forces that aren't as you know central to the American reader's experience, but I think are are actually pretty important in the book too, if that makes sense. So I thought that was very interesting. I was like, wow, she's get, she's doing a lot in this book. That gives me a whole other level of appreciation for a book that I already had a lot of appreciation for. Um, I know we are coming up on the end of time here. So I guess as a final round, I mean, I think it's pretty clear how we all feel about this book. But uh, what is the elevator pitch each of you would make to a friend who was asking whether or not they should read Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney? Sure. Do I have to describe the book to this person no. in the elevator? <laughs> or just, <laughs> just that Okay. <laughs> it's this meets that. Um, <laughs> the person in the elevator has read the Kirkus review. I was feeling review. so much stress. <laughs> <laughs> just like the fate of the book <laughs> rides on this. No. Um, I would say it's great. Definitely read it. it um, it's, it's really singular. It does things that not a lot of books that I've read recently do. Or, or tries to do them so um, and succeeds. So, yes, I would absolutely recommend this book. I would too. I, I echo Katie. It, singular is a good word for it. Um, it's it's distinctive. It's it's unusual. I'm quite interested to read what she does next. I I love the bravado, the ambition, um, the wit, the self consciousness. All of that, I, I really love. Yeah, actually, can I just quickly say this is a very funny book. Yeah. Um, yes. it will it will make you laugh out loud. Yeah. Um, just the the banter is very very funny and very sharp. It's and, so true. We might yeah. be making it sound so highfalutin by the way we're yeah. talking about it, but yeah. it's hilarious. Yeah, and sort of it's been described as self aware by a lot of critics, and it makes you think about the extent to which the characters are actually self aware. But Rooney is incredibly self aware at every turn. Totally. And that's really the pleasure of it. And I think that kind of, uh, it's like spin. Like I kept thinking, you know, everything has spin on it. And it's that's, I think, maybe why people think of Salinger, even though I think she's really not like Salinger. Um, That and the kind of disaffected youth. But but there's just so much spin, which is interesting. We loved this book. We recommend it very highly. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. And Megan and Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Laura. All right, that is our show, and you'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audio Book Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode, and that address is facebook.com slash slate ABC. 
Slate's Audio Book Club is part of the Panoply Network. Find out more about all our great podcasts at panoply.fm. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. And thanks for the assist, AC Valdez. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtig. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Once again, in next month's audiobook club, we'll be talking about What Happened by Hillary Clinton. For Megan O'Rourke and Katie Waldman, I'm Laura Bennett. Thanks for listening. <laughs>